Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis Fourteenth, And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. We will be reviewing all of our favorite new reviews on Apple Podcasts throughout the month of February, and the winner will get read on air, and you will receive a free Niche Legend dad hat from our merch store. So keep rating, keep reviewing. Thank you so much to everyone that's doing that. Please don't forget to follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to cop our merch, you can go to poppantheonpod.com and go to the merch store. And that's where our Niche Legend dad hat is and our Mere Superstar tee is as well. Also, Pop Pantheon All Access, our Patreon channel. We just dropped a new episode earlier this week where we are looking back at Rihanna's epic Super Bowl performance with Julianne Escobedo Shepard, Pop Pantheon fave. So if you want to hear our thoughts on the Super Bowl halftime show, go to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in our show notes to hear that. We also have our Grammys reaction episode and so many other amazing bonus contents and perks and discord access and the rest of it so with all of that housekeeping out of the way let's get into this week's episode which is a little bit different i guess for us and yet something i know you guys are gonna really enjoy it was so fascinating to get into this topic and i'm excited for you guys to listen to it so this is an episode about frank sinatra a pre-rock pop icon before the term pop star really ever came to be, I guess, but definitely one of the most formative musical figures of the 20th century. Someone that's cited as an influence from everybody from the rock pop stars that came after him, like John Lennon and Elvis, and all the way through to the massive pop icons that we like to talk about on our show all the time. A huge influence on Michael Jackson, a huge influence on George Michael, on so many of those stars. And then, of course, in his style of crooning, which is something that we see throughout pop music the intimate singing into the microphone that was his sort of ace card or the innovation that he helped popularize and make de rigueur something that we have seen seismically infiltrate pop culture from the singing styles of Britney and Janet to Lana Del Rey and Billie Eilish and on and on and on and also just a towering pop cultural figure somebody that even beyond his music and his artistry and all the rest of his myth is somebody that stands as probably one of the top 10 or 20 american icons of all time so i rounded up an absolutely top tier guest one of my all-time favorite podcast hosts karina longworth to come on and do this with me i hope you guys love it i know this is a little bit different and i think it's going to be all for the best that it is i had so much fun learning about this and getting to dive into all of this music and into the legend of the great man himself, Old Blue Eyes, the chairman of the board. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon, Frank Sinatra. Look, this is a show about pop stars, so I'd understand if some of you are confused about why you're listening to an episode about an entertainer who emerged before that term even existed. But when I first conceived of the idea of the pop pantheon, a way to taxonomize superstars from top to bottom and single out the most important figures in that hierarchy, 
Patient Zero for the concept of a pop music icon, at least in my head, has always been Frank Sinatra. Emerging first in the mid-1930s as a boy-next-door crooner turned entertainment powerhouse of music stage and film, Frank Sinatra used his singular voice, charisma, swagger, vision, sex appeal, and relentless work ethic to create something bigger than the sum of its parts. A legacy that transcends his 60-year career, 59 studio albums, cornucopia of definitive American standards, Oscar-winning film career, and seismic celebrity presence. Frank Sinatra isn't merely a definitional icon as we think of it today, but he's an idea, a piece of our pop cultural fabric that feels utterly intrinsic to not just music and film, but to America. I'm sure there's people listening to this podcast who couldn't name a single Sinatra song, but I doubt there's anyone who doesn't immediately know who he is and what he represents. If that doesn't both define the term pop star and then go about a million miles beyond it, I don't know what does. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. It's up to you, New York, New York. Frank Sinatra was born in December 1915 in Hoboken, New Jersey to Italian immigrants. His mother was a midwife and the dominant figure in his early life, and his father was an illiterate boxer. At a young age, Frank became enamored with big band, a maximalist form of jazz music, dance, and swing, as well as with superstar singers of the form like Rudy Valley, Gene Austin, and most importantly, the legendary crooner turned Hollywood superstar Bing Crosby, who became his inspiration to pursue singing professionally. As a teenager, he began performing in local clubs around Hoboken and on local radio stations. While he never learned to read music, he was a student of classical, had an intuitive ear for improvisation, storytelling ability, and a distinctive voice with range. He also possessed a unique combination of sex appeal and approachability, the type of guy you could swoon over and maybe even believe you could have one day. Sinatra got his first breaks into the industry as the lead singer of big band outfits, the Harry James Orchestra and the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, both of which helped him build a bit of a national profile that eventually provided a platform for him to strike out on his own, which he did in 1942, signing a record deal with Columbia Records the next year. Sinatra quickly became one of the most popular new singers of the early and mid 1940s, with his boy next door charm and savvy use of crooning, i.e. utilizing the microphone to foster intimacy rather than singing for sheer power, giving way to a series of smash hit singles through the period and the onset of Sinatra mania, perhaps the first true pop star fandomonium craze of the modern era, a precursor to movements like Beatlemania and stan culture. Sinatra also quickly made the pivot to acting, appearing in a series of successful films alongside actor and singer Gene Kelly in the mid-1940s. Musically, Sinatra's hit in this period focused on singular interpretations of standards, most of which portrayed him as a sweet, flirty, earnest lover boy, but with a pronounced undertone of lust just beneath the surface, as on his interpretation of the Cole Porter classic, Night and Day. And it's torment won't be through Till you let me spend my life making love to you day and night Night and day 
But just as Sinatra's star had skyrocketed following Sinatra mania in the early 40s, this initial stint in the national spotlight seemed to dim just as quickly. Following World War II, a series of interconnected events caused a backlash against Frank and plummeted him into what we might now refer to as his flop era. Shifting musical trends in the late 1940s towards pre-rock country-western aesthetics, his outspoken lefty political stances, which by the end of the decade had become equated with a then-poisonous notion of communist sympathy, and the controversial dissolution of his marriage to first wife Nancy, whom he cheated on and left for the actress Ava Gardner in 1951, all amounted to diminishing interest in Frank's music and stage shows. Columbia dropped him, and he retreated to Las Vegas, where he performed to half-filled theaters. But even in this career slump, Frank planted seeds that would become indelible parts of his myth, both helping throughout the 1950s to turn Vegas into the world-class entertainment city it would eventually become, and also giving birth to one of the most prominent elements of Frank's lasting legacy, his team-up with other Vegas stalwarts like Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr., which eventually became known as the Rat Pack. Sinatra's second wave of success, this one perhaps even more tremendous than the first, really kicked off when he appeared in the hit 1953 war drama From Here to Eternity, for which he won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, and which helped lead to a new recording contract with Capitol Records that same year. This period in Sinatra's recording career not only featured a panoply of his most enduring hits, like I've Got the World on a String, They Can't Take that away from me, I've got you under my skin and come fly with me, but also greatly expanded the scope of his artistic prowess and emotional nuance of his work with acclaimed concept albums like 1955's Meditation on Loneliness and Heartbreak in the Wee Small Hours, often in collaboration with the arranger Nelson Riddle. It was also in the second wave of success from the mid-1950s through the mid-1960s that codified the iconic image of Sinatra many of us hold today. The middle-aged, swaggering, glamorous, devil-may-care party boy with charm to burn, a bit of a melancholy streak, and an approach to singing that was at once virtuosic, conversational, and never anything short of profoundly rousing. It is perfect for a flying honeymoon they say come fly with me let's fly let's fly away In the early 1960s, Sinatra was at the peak of his power, influence, and celebrity. He left Capitol to start his own record label, Reprise Records, a then quite novel but rather prescient attempt to exert more creative control over his work and to foster that of other artists he liked and respected. He also had sustained success in Hollywood, starring in hits like The Manchurian Candidate and alongside his Rat Pack cohort in Ocean's Eleven. He released hit albums and singles throughout the decade, even as American culture went through the most seismic generational shift of the century at the dawn of the 60s with the sexual revolution and the birth of rock and roll. Movements a then nearly 50-year-old Frank had a rather prickly relationship to. Still, this period featured classic hits like Strangers in the Night, his attempt at funneling his brand through rock aesthetics in the number four peaking hit That's Life in 1966, as well as some interesting experimental forays like his cover of Simon and Garfunkel's Mrs. Robinson and The Beatles' Yesterday. His celebrity also remained as looming as ever, already thought of as one of the most towering icons in entertainment history, and he continued to make headlines with his personal life. Most notable when he began a relationship with and eventually married the actress Mia Farrow in the mid-1960s when he was 51 and she 30 years his junior. Frank finished the decade, then his fourth as a world-famous entertainer, by recording and releasing what is now widely considered to be his signature song, the Paul Anka-written My Way, a wistful and stirring ode to a life well-lived that could only have been delivered by an artist of Sinatra's age, charisma, and gravitas. But through it all, when there was doubt 
Despite a couple fake-out retirements, Sinatra continued performing and releasing music throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, even getting off one last indelible hit with his 1980 cover of the theme from New York, New York. He died in 1998 at the age of 82. Often referred to as Old Blue Eyes and the Chairman of the Board, as well as one of the greatest singers of the 20th century, Frank Sinatra recorded over 1,300 songs throughout his career and appeared in more than 50 films. Sinatra had the first Billboard number one single ever with 1940's I'll Never Smile Again and scored no fewer than 209 hits on the chart, 127 of which made the top 20, 70 of which made the top 10, and 10 of which reached number one. He released 56 top 20 albums, 42 top 10s, and six number ones, and sold 150 million records worldwide. He also has the longest time span of charting top 10 albums on the Billboard album chart, with the 62 years that elapsed between the voice of Frank Sinatra going to number one in 1946 and nothing but the best going to number two in 2008. He won 11 Grammy Awards, an Oscar, four Golden Globe Awards, a Peabody, a Cecil B. DeMille Award, a Screen Actors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award, a Kennedy Center Medal of Honor, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Cited as an influence on artists as far-ranging as Elvis, Michael Jackson, and Billie Eilish, Sinatra is often noted as one of the most prominent pop cultural figures in history, with Time Magazine naming him in their list of the 20th century's most influential figures. Here with me to discuss the epic life and career and work of the great Frank Sinatra is host of my all-time favorite podcast, you must remember this, Karina Longworth. I am here with the host and creator of what is my unequivocal all-time favorite podcast, and I am not being hyperbolic, I truly mean this. You must remember this, Karina Longworth, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction. I cannot tell you the times (laughs) this podcast has gotten me through. It's so interesting because this isn't necessarily in the exact same wheelhouse as our show, but anybody who's a fan of podcasts, the way you tell stories, the way you bring these periods of old Hollywood up through even like more contemporary times, even in the 80s and 90s, to life, the characters, it's spellbinding. I mean, that's the only (laughs) word I can think of for it, and I'm truly, truly honored to be able to talk to you today. Oh, thank you. We're here today to talk about a pop star that is definitely of a breed that we haven't really addressed. And in fact, I don't know if the term pop star even is an accurate thing to deploy when talking about Frank Sinatra, but it's been so interesting to me going back through his work, or maybe I shouldn't even say back through because I was familiar only on the most peripheral level with what he had done as a musician. Obviously, he's one of the most iconic American figures of the 20th century, but he is someone that I think like exists to me more as an idea than as like a fully fleshed out star character, aside from listening to your show really more than anything else. So I was just intrigued thinking about the ways that he feels removed in a lot of meaningful ways from the modern pop star canon. He is 
someone that existed before the idea of the narrative-driven pop star who makes statement albums about their personal life. And there's all of these ideas about 360-degree pop stardom in the post-MTV era and the idea of the visual artist, the music video artist, whatever, that we sort of think of as integral to pop stars. But at the same time, there's so many ways, including the pandemonium that erupted over him when he first debuted, the way that he was able to swallow up and take over culture in all of these different ways that makes him seem like perhaps he is the first pop star, question mark? I mean, just the way that you were describing contemporary pop stars and how Frank Sinatra maybe is not like that, I was thinking of ways in which he is. He did do albums that were narratives about his personal life, except that he would record them in 1958 and they'd be all songs from 1933. Right. You know? Yeah. He was a multimedia artist in that he did live performances, recordings, movies, TV, And he wasn't necessarily the first of his kind, but he was definitely one of the most prominent people doing all of those things at that time. But there are definitely ways in which he pioneered certain things that we think about pop stars doing now. And in your mind, are there specific things that jump out as the main items in that list for you? Well, he was basically one of the first singers who was able to sing quietly rather than be projecting off of a stage to reach their audience. He really was inspired on that by Bing Crosby and most of Sinatra's early career until he was 15, 20 years into it. He was kind of ripping off Bing Crosby to some extent, but he took singing into a microphone further than Bing Crosby. Sinatra was even quieter and even more seductive with his voice. And because of that, and because he was 25 but looked 16, he really appealed to teenage (laughs) girls in a way that you'd later see people like Elvis do. But Sinatra's getting these kinds of reactions of screaming teenage girls in 1940. Right. I mean, I was even looking up that the Sinatra fan base had names that would probably ring true to people today, like the Sinatrix. I kept thinking about like Levotics and Seleniters and all of these things. Yeah. I mean, had there been times in the past, either in Hollywood or pop music, where fan bases had come up with like names for themselves like that before? Not that I can recall, no. <laughs> yeah, that felt very contemporary. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about what the idea of the crooner is, but that was one of the things that really stood out to me too. People might not think about this, but for most of the history of music, people didn't sing into a microphone. They projected their voice into a theater, and that was what singing was. It was like who could sing the loudest, who could get their voice out the furthest. Yeah, that's one of the things that made you qualified to be a singer. Right. In opera, for instance, there was absolutely a necessity. And on Broadway, it was absolutely a necessity. Right. I think you might know Molly Lambert. We did an episode with Molly on Billie Eilish, and she was tying Billie Eilish's form of crooning back to Frank Sinatra. She's someone that sings in an incredibly intimate, quiet, close-up-to-the-mic voice. But we talk about so many pop stars that have taken that concept, that intimacy, that crooners invented using the microphone. I mean, I was thinking the entire time about Janet. I was thinking about Britney. I was thinking about Lana Del Rey. I was thinking about so many of these pop stars that utilize quietness and intimacy in terms of how they record their voices. And Frank wasn't the first person to do that, but I think he probably stands as the most famous iteration of that early idea of crooning, Bing Crosby being the other major one. Yeah. I mean, Bing Crosby was super famous, too. Right. But I think that today, Bing Crosby is not nearly as famous as Frank Sinatra is. Right. His work has not been as lasting. 
I think the other thing that was on a broad scale tying him back to some of the ways we think about modern pop stardom is his level of meticulousness and detail and control over the process. I mean, we now think of pop stars as these editors and chiefs of their careers. We think of Madonna, you think of Beyonce. These are people that, even if they're not always writing their own material or even if they're not doing every single aspect of it, have this really type A control over detail. They have these great ears for how things are supposed to look and sound. And that's a big element in their stardom. And what I could gather from my cursory research is that was really something that Frank did even more so than maybe even like a Bing Crosby or stars that he was building off of was he had a very meticulous ear for detail and vision in terms of, as we'll get to later in the conversation, these concept albums or the way that arrangements should look. So that to me was another element that I thought maybe was like an innovation that sort of links him more to contemporary pop stars as well. Yeah, especially in the way that he chose to work with very specific arrangers and composers and producers over and over and over again, especially as he got more and more famous and older. He didn't trust everyone. <laughs> right. There's only certain people that he trusted. And so he's always working with people like Gordon Jenkins and Nelson Riddle. And he kind of has his crew of people that he trusts to understand what he's doing. No singers really had as much control as he was able to have, especially after he started his own record label, Reprise. Right. And the whole point of Reprise was to unfuck the recording <laughs> artist contracts right. because he had had so much experience of losing out on money because he didn't own his masters. He signed Sammy Davis Jr., who was his friend, and they had a complicated relationship, but Sammy was always running out of money because he didn't own the masters to any of his recordings. And so in order to really help him, Frank signed him to a reprise to try to fix that. But then Sammy had all kinds of problems with debt and <laughs> it didn't work out. But that was the idea. You did a great series on this, too, that people should listen yeah. to if they're interested in that topic. I guess the other thing that I just wanted to kind of nail up top is the swagger, the confidence, the persona that infiltrated the music and also his larger than life footprint on the pop music and pop cultural landscape for such a long period of time. I mean, his energy as a person almost lives on even more so than even some of these songs do in weird ways. Like, I bet you there's a lot of people that totally get the idea of Frank Sinatra, the Rat Pack, the energy, and obviously the sort of subtle sexual intonation of the whole thing, which is something I'm really excited to talk about with you because I think that was such a big element of this, the sex sells element of the whole thing, which is obviously another huge part of modern pop stardom as well. Mm -hmm. But I was just thinking so much about how just the aura of him, the persona of him almost outlives any of his actual work in a certain way, which feels like a huge element of this too, to just put a pin in right here at the beginning of the convo. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people who have an idea of who Frank Sinatra is, but couldn't tell you a Frank Sinatra song. Exactly. So I've been throwing around the word pop star. That's not a term that is used during Frank's peak era and prior to it. We didn't refer to singers or successful singers as pop stars, I'm assuming, right? I spent some time looking into this and I can't really figure out when that term started. Yeah. It was definitely during his career that they started talking about popular music and the pops. Right. But a lot of that was tied to chart performance. Mm. And the equivalent to today's Billboard Hot 100 or a singles chart basically started in 1940. And Frank Sinatra had the first number one hit on it. Wow. So if that's how you decide what a pop star is through that kind of performance, he's the right. first. But in other ways, he was emulating other people, particularly Bing Crosby. Right. And what would you call Bing Crosby? Like, was he just referred to as a singer, a crooner? I know there's the term 
matinee idol, which is like a thing that gets used a lot. What did we refer to like successful singers prior to the idea of the pop star? Yeah, I mean, Bing Crosby was a singer and then quickly hopped to Hollywood and and became a movie star really fast. I mean, I just have to stress how super, super, super famous Bing Crosby was. (laughs) I know that he's not somebody you talk about, but the way that the Beatles would have looked up to Chuck Berry or somebody like that, that's who Frank Sinatra was looking up to. It was somebody who was 10 years older than him who was doing everything that he wanted to do. It gave him the idea that you could be just sort of like a fairly good looking, but not super (laughs) great looking white guy who could mesmerize the world through Mm. voice and through your persona. It was a lucky April shower. It was the most convenient door. I found a million dollar baby in a five and ten cent store. And it really was in Bing Crosby's era about how he came across on record, right? You know, there was no TV. He wasn't on TV. So it was the way that Bing Crosby was captivating people prior to him going to Hollywood and starting to become a movie star. That was the sole way that you conveyed successful singerness is through your voice, through people buying records, essentially, right? Well, it was on the radio mostly. Bing Crosby was a huge radio star and then was a movie yeah. star. And he hopped to Hollywood pretty fast. I mean, I think his first movie is 1929 or 1930. Mm-hmm. And he was doing music because the sound era starts in Hollywood in 1927, 1928. And the first things that they figure out how to do with sound, because it took them a while for the sound era to really mature. But the easiest thing to do was musicals. There was this frenzy to get people from Broadway musicals and from radio to come and make a movie. And so a lot of these early musicals are sort of songs in search of a story. (laughs) And Bing Crosby was really good at that because he could anchor two or three musical numbers Every time it rains, it rains, and he's from heaven. And then he had like an affable persona where you could put him in a romance plot, you could put him on a horse. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of things he could do. He was more versatile than Frank was as an actor, for sure. Two questions for you. One is, was pivoting to Hollywood kind of an essential for a star like Bing Crosby just because that was the way you fleshed your persona out to the general public and it was kind of the only way to do that? And then secondarily, I'm wondering what a young Frank Sinatra was looking at Bing Crosby and being like, okay, that, 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 that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was definitely possible to have a successful career as a singer without going to Hollywood, but that would just sort of inflame your stardom. Not only would it make you a bigger celebrity, but it was such a greater avenue for making money. Right. And so there were definitely singers who didn't, but a lot of people were at least given a shot. And not just singers. At that time when they were doing these early musicals, band leaders, trumpet players, they were trying to build movies around anyone who could do anything musically. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of some of the stuff that Frank Sinatra looked up to in Bing Crosby, you know, Frank Sinatra grows up in Hoboken, New Jersey, very working class. His mom is like a political fixer and also an abortionist. They're educated middle class people, but it's a working class community. And Bing Crosby was wearing navy blazers and yachting caps. And he had sort of a vibe (laughs) of being a little bit higher class, but not so out of bounds that you couldn't aspire to it. Right. So I think there was that. And then I think that he was seduced by Bing Crosby's voice and his way of using the microphone. And in this way where Frank Sinatra was not sexually attracted to Bing Crosby, but he saw how women were sexually attracted to Bing Crosby. And he wanted to be that as well. And there were 
were other singers also I was reading that Frank in his early years looked up to, like Rudy Valley and Gene Austin. Big band, I think, being another form or genre of music that he was really drawn to as a child. Certainly big band music was the pop music of the time. And that's essentially a form of jazz. It's really literal. Yeah. Like, it's music big played <laughs> by big bands. Usually there'd be a front man who was not necessarily the singer. It was often yeah. a trumpet player or a trombonist who would be the arranger and the band leader, and he'd hire all these other musicians. I mean, Tommy Dorsey's band had, like, a huge string section. Right. It depended on what level you were at as to how many musicians you could afford to travel with. Right. But the idea was that it was a band that had many different instruments in it and could have a really big sound in a dance hall, in a concert space, and also on the radio. The music is like jazz, swing music, romantic ballads, but it's a big sound. Right. It's a big sound, but it can traverse a lot of different styles in a certain way. It could be dance music. It could be like a slow song. It could be a lot of different things. Okay. So you were saying he grows up in a working class family in Hoboken. He idolizes people like Bing Crosby. He's taken with big band. How does he personally discover his passion for music? And what's his journey to the beginnings of his professional career as a singer? Both of his parents loved to sing. The vibe was sort of like hanging out in bars and there'd be like (laughs) sing-alongs and stuff like that. Sinatra either dropped out or was kicked out of high school right before his (laughs) junior year when he was around 16. And he's just started doing odd jobs around town. He worked as an assistant to a plasterer, Mm. things like that. But he dreamed of something more. And he managed to scrape together $65 to buy a microphone and an amplifier, which allowed him to sell himself to events that needed a singer, whether it was a school dance, a local Italian-American society party or whatever it was. So that's how we got to start. And, you know, eventually he joined this group called The Four Flashes. Right. And they went on this radio show called The Major Bows Hour, yep. where they had an amateur contest, which is kind of like the American Idol of its day. Right. We have now the Hoboken Four. They call themselves the Singing and Dancing Fools. Who speak for the group? I will. I'm Frank. Uh, we're looking for jobs. How about it? <laughs> uh, everyone that's ever heard us liked it. My hair is curly. The man's got curly hair. It's so hard for me to, like, describe, like, what the sound of this music is. To be, I'm like, barbershop quartet, but I know that that's probably not an accurate description of what it was. I mean, that's similar. A group like that where it's based on vocalists, each member has to kind of bring in their own sound. It's based on these complicated harmonies, which is very different than what he did next, which is he'd be the singer for a big band. So he's sort of a featured singer, but it's still Henry James's band or it's Tommy Dorsey's band. It's not Frank Sinatra's band. Right. So... He is in this group. He quickly emerges as the lead singer of the group, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then that sends him on like a run of bands that, as you were mentioning, he becomes lead singer of. Like, how does that exactly play out? Being in the Four Flashes, there wasn't a lot of money in it. It wasn't like a full-time job. And then they win this amateur hour, which is really high profile at the time. And Mm -hmm. Harry James, who was the leader of one of these bands, he was a trumpeter, sort of discovers Sinatra and then hires him. It's funny. How you loved me, then forgot so suddenly. It's funny to everyone but me. 
Tommy Dorsey, who has an even bigger band, hires him away from Harry James. And it's with Tommy Dorsey that he becomes a recording artist because Dorsey was releasing singles constantly. And so it's really like between 1940 and 1942 that Frank Sinatra gets a national profile as the singer on all these Tommy Dorsey records. Those famous lovers will make them forget from Adam and Eve to Scarlet and Red. Is there elements to Frank's singular persona that we were laying out at the beginning of this? Like, is all of that evident from the beginning? Like, what is it about Frank that causes him to have this early success where he's getting placed at the lead of some of these bands? What exactly is it about him that is standout or makes him singular at this point? Well, women really responded to him, especially young women, teenagers. That was evident to everyone. And one of the reasons they did is you talked earlier about his swagger, and I think that was something that came a little bit later. Right. At this point, what the audience was responding to was that he seemed kind of weak and vulnerable. He was like 5'7". He wore lifts in his shoes. He was really, really skinny. The old joke about him is credited to Ava Gardner, which is that he's 120 pounds, but 100 pounds of it is cock. (laughs) He was just like a really skinny guy who allegedly had a very large penis. And so it's sort of a combination of he's presenting as like wounded and a lot of these songs he's singing are songs of heartbreak where they're songs of romantic seduction. Mm. But then he also had this core of a rogue. A hundred percent. It was really interesting. I went back and listened to a bunch of these early songs like Our Love and From the Bottom of My Heart. And he really does create this sense of intimacy and this like lower range of his voice is very sexy that he sings it. And he really sounds like he's whispering in your ear in this very sensual way, saying some borderline salacious things. For that period, the lyrics are not in and of themselves particularly what we would consider raunchy by any means. But there's a way in which he feels like he's coming on to you through these songs in a certain sense. The kiss in your eyes and the touch of your hand makes me weak. And my heart may grow dizzy and fall. Totally. And young women really responded to that and they wanted to see it in person. And so that creates these events, even when he's still singing for Tommy Dorsey, where they'll oversell these audiences and there'll be sort of too many young women packed into a room and they're all screaming and it becomes what is called Sinatra mania. How are these fans finding each other? I mean, do they just (laughs) meet at the concerts? I mean, now we think about fan culture and stan culture coalescing on the internet. People find each other. They form these communities that the star doesn't even have to be directly involved with for them to flourish. In this period, how is a wave of fan culture materializing exactly before he's even a superstar in a national sense? I mean, there were fan clubs. Usually, I think that they were more for people who were movie stars and the studio could collect all the fan mail. But I think in the case of somebody like Sinatra at this stage, this early in his career, it isn't an organized thing. It's not like a hundred girls getting together and going to the concert together. It's two to four girls. And then there's a hundred of these groups of girls who know each other and they all show up at the same time. And it's because they hear him on the radio and then they see like a poster of him and they want to see it. 
in real life. Sitting at home listening to the radio was what, for me, growing up in the 80s and 90s, watching MTV was. Right. It's so funny just thinking about the way that these things operate today, just thinking of the Sinatra maniacs fighting the Bing Crosby fans and being like, Sinatra outsold, <laughs> flop, you know, whatever. There's something so pure and innocent about it. But I was reading so many quotes from the onset of Sinatra mania, where even Dorsey was saying you could just feel the excitement. People were screaming, freaking out. I'm wondering, was the level of frenzy around him novel? And my follow-up question to that is, did that have to do with the sexuality? Was that a unique facet of Sinatra's on-record persona and stardom? Or was that something that other crooners were doing that he just did the best? Was it unique in terms of the level of pandemonium and why? It was definitely unique in the level of pandemonium. I mean, he was doing what Bing Crosby had done, but he was doing it in a slightly more seductive way. And I've never read any stories of this kind of frenzy about Bing Crosby, even though he was extremely, extremely famous. I think maybe he didn't seem as accessible. Whereas one of the things about Frank Sinatra that really helped his profile in this way was that he reminded people of a boy who grew up down the street, Mm. a guy they knew in high school who they had a crush on or who maybe was not interested in them. Maybe they'd have kind of a second chance with Frank Sinatra. I wonder also what role race plays in all of this too, because obviously a big part of Sinatra's story is his Italian-American heritage. And I wonder how that was received at the time, because I know that this Mm -hmm. was a time period where being Italian-American was a more marginalized identity. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was open racism against Italian-Americans, against Irish-Americans. All these so-called white immigrants were looked down upon by white Protestants, let's say. One of the things that's notable about Frank Sinatra is that most people who had a name like Sinatra that was identifiably ethnic would change their name. I can't remember which band leader, but one of the band leaders wanted him to change his name to Frankie Satin. And he refused. He just thought that was cheesy. And everybody was doing this. Dean Martin changed his name from Dino Crescetti. But Frank Sinatra didn't. And so for better or for worse, he would be identifiably Italian for his whole career. And I think that definitely made him a target for criticism from some people. Some people just still hated Italians, were suspicious of them, thought they were all sleazy and sweaty gangsters. Right. And then, you know, it also might have helped him with these young girls because it gave him like a little bit of danger. So are there any songs before he goes solo and leaves Tommy Dorsey, just one even in particular that sort of stands out to you as an emblematic Frank Sinatra song of this period that helps Mm. us understand everything that we're talking about here? There's so many. He was finding his way through what would come to be known as the American songbook at that time. And so he's singing a lot of songs from like the 1920s and 1930s, something that he does a signature rendition of at that time and then records it several times later throughout his career. That's interesting is the song Night and Day, which had been probably most associated with Fred Astaire before Frank Sinatra recorded it. And then Frank Sinatra really takes it to a different place because Mm. Fred Astaire's version is from the musical The Gay Divorcee. The tempo is really fast. It's basically a song for tap dancing. Night and day, you are the one, only you beneath the moon and under the sun. Frank Sinatra takes it to this place of it being about heartache and longing. And his version with Tommy Dorsey even is like a little bit more restrained. And then when he can sing it as a solo artist, his voice is absolutely top level in the mix. And it's kind of a cry for help. (laughs) (laughs) Whether near to me or far, it's no matter, darling, where you are. I think of you 
It's an interesting one because I feel like a lot of the songs from this pre-Columbia era to me are very swoony. The rush of falling in love, the minute you see a girl, mm. please bring your lips close to my cheek. My heart may grow dizzy and fall, you know, like that kind of stuff. So it's interesting yeah. to solo out like a gut punch of a song, as you mentioned, like a sad song in a sense. He's definitely also singing and popularizing songs that are a little bit more upbeat or right. less world-weary. Yes, totally. Songs like Fool's Russian. Polka Dots and Moonbeams was another one. Yeah, just the fact that there was a song called Polka Dots and Moonbeams, <laughs> you know? I felt a bump and hurt and, oh, beg your pardon, suddenly I saw polka dots and moonbeams all around the pug nose dream for somebody that was definitely known for being a philanderer and like a little bit of a dog <laughs> it's funny to me like how sweet they all are they're just kind of like yeah. oh this is the definite kind of guy you'd want to meet he seems like a total sweetheart you'd bring him home to your mama and he's singing you songs about the american dreams like polka dots and moonbeams is like you know now we're gonna build a cottage with lilacs yeah. and laughter and ever after <laughs> and blah 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 he really sells that well for somebody that i know that that really wasn't his actual personal sort of story really even as you were mentioning he's stepped out a lot on his wife too, right? Yeah, but isn't that just the American man story? Yes, 100%. That's what it felt like. Men like woo the girl by being like, you're the only one for me. I've never felt yeah. this way before. <laughs> the first yeah. time I saw you, I knew. And then they get it in and everything yes. changes. <laughs> 100%. It totally fits that narrative perfectly yeah. well. It was just funny to me like how much he sells that vibe. It really speaks yeah. to what you were saying earlier about him being the quintessential boy next door. He really has that vibe on record. He comes across like a total sweetheart in this really appealing way. And nowadays, people would be writing into Dumois and being like, right. <laughs> Frank Sinatra is not what he sings about. Like, I met him after the show, and then he never called me again. Right. And then I saw him with another girl. But yeah. back then, you could maintain the fantasy for a lot longer. And he really did maintain the fantasy until he left his wife, Ava Gardner. Yeah, right. And then his whole public persona changed, I guess, from that scandal, right? Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, we'll get to that. <laughs> so how does he kind of break out of being the front man of these bands? It seems like I would say, correct to characterize it, that it was obvious that he was going to break out and have to embark on a solo career. How does Frank work that exactly? he was gaining such a higher profile than the band he was part of. Right. People knew that there was money to be made off of working with him, and he could do so many more things if he wasn't tied to the schedule of the band. There's a lot of differing stories as to how he got out of his contract with Dorsey, and it's sort of dramatized in The Godfather, right. although Sinatra himself was like, that's not how it was. But definitely probably the mafia got involved somehow. <laughs> All we really know is that Columbia really wanted to sign him. Tommy Dorsey was like, this guy's my meal ticket. And so he wanted to keep him. And so Tommy Dorsey got a big payoff to basically allow his contract with Sinatra to be broken. And so he gets this deal with Columbia. And does his music or persona sort of change or evolve in notable ways once he breaks out of that and like officially becomes a solo artist? Are there specific ways in which the songs he's gravitating towards, his on-record persona, his on-stage persona, his celebrity persona shifts or changes in that period after he embarks on this solo career? So, I mean, the recordings definitely change because his voice doesn't have to be second fiddle to the rest of the band. If you're the singer for Tommy Dorsey's band, Tommy Dorsey's arrangement 
of the orchestra is going to be the star. Right. And so when you listen to a lot of those songs, there's like this long interlude of music before Frank even sings. Right. And then his voice is usually mixed pretty quietly and it's sort of polite. <laughs> even when it's really emotional, it's kind of polite. And then when he becomes a solo singer, it flips. And so his voice is absolutely dominant in the song. And then the music is there to support his voice. Until I hear you at the door Until you're in my arms once more Saturday night is the loneliest night of the week Also, what ends up happening not long after this is that he starts making movies. His first sort of big movie that's released by MGM and is given like the full push is Anchors Away in 1944. And what is pivoting into movies do for his stardom, generally speaking? You sort of have two different machines working to push him. You have the recording company and then you have MGM, which is the biggest studio in Hollywood and does the best job of creating stars and promoting stars. And so he has that. But at the same time, because he wasn't a trained actor. This was not a period of time where what they were going for in movies was naturalism. Right. <laughs> it was pre-method acting, pre-even the idea of acting schools. And so what most performers were doing was very specifically movie acting, which is different than stage acting, different than stage performance. And so oftentimes a studio like MGM wouldn't give you a star vehicle right away. They'd sort of put you with another star and see how you did. And they just kind of kept doing that with Sinatra, usually oh. pairing him with Gene Kelly. And Gene Kelly was a singer and a dancer and a choreographer. And so so he actually had a lot of control over these movies because he was choreographing them. And his persona was like if a bricklayer was a ballet dancer. <laughs> yeah. And so he's like kind of like a tough, really hot but muscular guy right. who is also a singer and a dancer and is the most graceful guy you've ever seen. Yeah. And so if you put him on screen next to some guys, like Gene Kelly will seem like the more feminine one. But if you put him on screen next to Frank Sinatra, who's, again, 120 pounds, Gene Kelly seems really masculine and Frank Sinatra seems like his weakling kid brother. Oh, never in all my life have I seen such dames. This blonde. Not that there was anything wrong with that redhead of yours, huh, Brooklyn? Oh, no, no, no. She, uh, she was rather interesting. <laughs> oh, interesting. You should have seen the kid work. <laughs> and so they made at least three movies together between... 1944 and 1949. And in all of them, Gene Kelly is like the alpha male and Frank Sinatra is down a peg. Right. He's aging into his 30s at this time and he's still playing like the boy next door. And so while it works to some extent, I mean, these movies are hits. I don't think it's necessarily compatible with what he's doing as a recording artist where he is taking more of a protagonist role, let's say. Is it playing into him as like the accessible guy that you know? Is that sort of how the contrast with Kelly is working? Working? Is that how it's sort of building out or fleshing out that particular persona? It is, totally, but the movies are not centered on him. He's always sort of the second banana. Even as the singer for Tommy Dorsey, like, he is literally at the center of the stage and right. he's telling the story of the song. In these movies, it's not really his story being told. Right. Flipping back to the music, as we were sort of insinuating, this is the first wave of massive, 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 like, sustained superstardom for Frank as a recording artist. I mean, he's been famous before, as we've mentioned, as the front people for these various bands. I can only characterize from afar, maybe you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but he's having a massive explosion of success and a huge run of hit songs. I mean, is it safe to say he's the biggest popular singer of this period of the mid-40s, essentially? I don't 
don't know. I mean, he was very, very famous. He's definitely an A-list singer, not as successful as a movie star. But during this period of 1942 to about 1948, he's very, very famous as a singer. And it's not like the movies were bad for his singing career necessarily. I mean, the one sort of solo song he sings in Anchors Away is I Fall in Love Too Easily, which is kind of a quintessential Frank Sinatra song where it's lamenting that you're a sucker, some woman turned you into a sucker, <laughs> and using that lament to, like, get more women. <laughs> I fall in love too terribly hard for love to ever that's so true. I was going to ask, what are the hallmarks of a traditional Frank Sinatra song in this period? And I think you yeah. just kind of nailed that. His whole career is he's like the guy at the end of the bar sitting by himself who the woman is supposed to be like, oh, what's his deal? He's so mysterious. Yeah. Are there other songs that like jump out in this particular area that feel illustrative of his on record persona at this moment? I think that's something that is kind of important to note of how famous he was and how much power he had is that he recorded this song called Nancy with the Laughing Face, which is yes. his tribute to his wife who he's always cheating on. <laughs> but it's like he was so famous that his wife who was a homemaker who took care of their kids and was not involved in any of the arts or entertainment at all could sort of become a character in popular culture. Right. I swear to goodness you can't resist her Sorry for you she has no sister, no angel could replace Nancy with a laughing face. I was thinking that was an incredibly modern way to sort of integrate the celebrity narrative into the work in a way that is so integral to the way that modern pop stars function. And in a way that, as we were mentioning, a lot of these other songs, especially in this period, the on-record persona and Frank Sinatra's personal life feel there's connective tissue, I'm sure. Some of the romantic gestures that he's making and all of that stuff is true to him and true to him on some particular level. Because that song was originally titled something different. It was not his song originally. Mm -hmm. He switched that to bring that idea of the celebrity narrative in. And I thought that was a really interesting moment in looking back at this where we're building out this idea of Frank Sinatra as not just someone you're experiencing through hit songs on the radio, but you're getting a whole sense of this story and this world around him by including his wife's name in that song. I thought that was really notable as well. Yeah, I mean, that's one way in which it really helps to be this multimedia artist. Every movie star, every other actor at MGM was being forced to bring fan magazines into their living room and do these staged photo shoots about how great their wife was and how great their house was. But he was able to do that through song. So it seemed more genuine. Yes, 100%. When I was listening to a bunch of records from this period, it's fascinating to think about the fact that this was his first real wave of superstardom. But I think when we in modern times think back on the Frank Sinatra canon of songs, very few of like the signature Frank Sinatra songs that we think of today come fly with me or New York, New York or My Way or I Got the World on a String or whatever it is. Very few of the songs actually emerged during this initial wave. 
wave of success. I found that really interesting and kind of surprising as I was thinking about this chronologically in a way that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, I mean, for all the things that sort of make him special and that made him really famous, it wasn't clear that he was going to have a 60-year career in 1945. He was sort of doing what a lot of people had done before, which is doing these renditions of songs that were already classics for the most part. Mm -hmm. I don't think that he really became the powerful force in popular culture until after he had this slump and then this comeback. Right. And then he's able to do something that is really unique to him, which is the sort of Vegas persona. So Frank has this initial wave of massive success, but as you said, he's maybe a little flavor of the moment or maybe just one amongst a series of A-list pop singers of this particular moment. And then things turn on him in the late 40s and early 50s. How exactly does that happen? So a lot of things happen all at once. He never really became a movie star on his own. It just kind of got to a point where he couldn't keep playing the second banana soldier in these Gene Kelly movies. In 1945, when he was very, very, very famous, famous and like had just had his first hit movie. So nobody knew he wasn't going to really be a movie star yet. He had hired this writer named Albert Maltz to write a short film about these kids who are bullying a Jew. And Frank Sinatra's in the short film. It's called The House I Live In. And it's sort of a plea for tolerance during World War II. Son, anybody in your family ever go to the blood bank? Sure. My mother and my father both. Uh Uh-huh. You know what? I bet you maybe his pop's blood helped save your dad's life. That's bad. What's bad about it? Well, don't you see? Your father doesn't go to the same church as his father does. That's awful. Do you think maybe if your father knew about it in time, he would rather have died than to take blood from a man of another religion? Would you have wanted him to die? Would your mom want him to die? No. Look, fellas, religion makes no difference, except maybe to a Nazi or somebody as stupid. Why, people all over the world worship God in many different ways. God created everybody. He didn't create one people better than another. Your blood's the same as mine. Mine's the same as his. And that short film was given an honorary Oscar. But two years later, Albert Maltz, who wrote this short film, was one of the Hollywood 10 when the Hollywood blacklist started. And so Sinatra is one of a lot of people who wore his liberal politics on his sleeve during the war, who after the war, those same politics were not considered patriotic anymore. They were considered suspicious and in line with communism. And so at first, he, along with Gene Kelly and Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and all these other stars, were against the blacklist. They all got together in a private plane and they flew to Washington to support the Hollywood 10, who are these screenwriters and producers who were brought before Congress to basically answer whether or not they had ever been members of the Communist Party. But the cultural tide shifted really, really fast. And almost everybody who was part of that private plane party was forced to publicly apologize. And if they didn't, their career sort of went into a slump. And Sinatra did not publicly apologize. Right. I was going to say that doesn't really suit his persona in general, right? He kind of has like a no fucks given vibe to him on some level. Yeah. If anything, instead of publicly apologizing, he would just punch somebody out. Yeah. But <laughs> So he was sort of insulated for a bit because this movie On the Town, which was his kind of last movie with Gene Kelly, opens in 1949 and is a big hit. But, you know, around that same time, his record career really starts to slump because things are changing. A lot of the top songs of 1949 were country western songs. And so it's sort of the bridge between the kind of pop music that he had been doing and rock and roll. A bowl of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky, for he saw the riders coming home. 
And he heard their mournful cry. And so Bing Crosby has like five hits in 1949 because he can put on a cowboy hat. He can play that part, but Frank Sinatra cannot. Right. And so his record career is sort of failing. His movie career is going nowhere. There's all this right-wing press about how he might be a communist. Like, he's never said he wasn't. Right. He worked with this communist, Albert Maltz. What is he hiding? And then in the late 40s into 1950, his marriage blows up Mm. because he leaves his wife for the actress Ava Gardner, who was a huge sex symbol at the time. And so then he starts getting the bad press from the celebrity press. And it blows apart this boy-next-door persona. Right. But sort of is the phoenix rising from the ashes genesis of the bad boy Vegas version of Frank Sinatra. Totally. That's kind of the one that I think of in my mind, right? Like, so ultimately pays off in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And his relationship with Ava Gardner is really tempestuous and painful. There's reliable reports that he was violent with her, and it was not a good relationship, even though they both considered the other one to be the great love of their life. Yeah. And it led to some of his best records because he really funneled his angst into these recordings. And he's still recording songs from the 30s, but he's doing it in this way where he's not pretending to be the family man or the boy next door anymore. He's doing it from this point of view of a drunk middle-aged guy. So in 1959, he puts out this album called No One Cares. (laughs) He actually referred to the songs on that album as his suicide songs. Oh my God. (laughs) He records Stormy Weather. Oh yeah, I listened to that. He's basically taking these songs that had different connotations and then super slowing the tempo down and really making it feel like he's a broken man. Yeah. Since my gal and I together Keeps raining all the time I mean, his persona really, really shifts over time and the kind of songs he gravitates to. And I'm excited to talk about that in our next segment about the way that he goes from doe-eyed boy next door to like world-worn. There's a real ache to a lot of these songs, especially in the late 50s, early 60s era of his career that are pretty fascinating and dynamic, really more interesting in some ways than the early stuff. I'll just add to that. He wouldn't have been able to get to being able to do an album like No One Cares in 1959. And that's also basically when the Vegas stardom starts. If he had hadn't gone through this really dark period in 1950, 1951, 1952, where nobody wanted him to record. Right, right, Nobody wanted to cast him in movies. He's married to Ava Gardner, but they hate each other, but they love each other. (laughs) He's losing money left and right. I mean, that's when he really starts establishing himself in Vegas because it's the only place that will have him. Yeah. But it's also he's able to, I think, find a little bit more depth in himself through this failure, which he's then able to capture on record a few years later. American popular culture loves a comeback for sure. So I think that there's an element to that too. But I agree. There's something fascinating about the way that his persona becomes so much richer and more dynamic following the failure as you were kind of getting at and following these like personal foibles. His work starts to feel as more honest maybe. As I mentioned, there's a real sense of world-wornness and heartbreak that starts to emerge that is like how I think about Frank Sinatra's songs. To me, that's where it begins. Going back and listening to this 40s stuff for me was basically thinking of almost like a totally different singer 
in a certain sense. That Ava Gardner relationship has so much to do with this. And one of the reasons why they broke up is because she was shooting this movie Magambo in Africa. Yes. And instead of being on location with her, he took the part in From Here to Eternity. So this rescues his film career, but it also like leaves her lonely in Africa. And neither of them were very good at being faithful. So in some sense, he chooses his career over his marriage. Right. And then he has to live with that. And that becomes part of his persona at that point. Okay, so you were laying out for us the reasons why Frank enters what I'm going to refer to as his flop era in the late 1940s and early 1950s. What does a flop era or Frank's career slump, what does that look like for an artist in the late 40s or early 50s? What did that mean? So he had been signed to Columbia Records, a major record company. Columbia drops him. He had a movie contract at MGM, the biggest movie studio, although movie studios are changing at this time, but MGM drops him. And then he would have like a nightly or a weekly rate for live performances. And he was playing the biggest venues at the highest rate. And then those venues don't want to book him anymore. And then when he can get booked, his rate just drops and drops and drops. So one example is that at the same time, the biggest act and sort of nightclub performance is Martin and Lewis, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. They're making $10,000 a night. Sinatra, he used to be the highest paid. At the same time that they're making $10,000 a night, his rate drops to $10,000 a week. Is it common in this era for things to feel short-lived in terms of careers of these big pop artists? Is it not so unusual that he would have had this burning hot and bright moment for a series of years and then sort of feel over? Or was that particular to him and his unapologetic nature and the moves that he made in his career that we were just kind of laying out before? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was more common for somebody to have 10 good years and then die than (laughs) for them to have a long career. I mean, also, you have to understand the entertainment industry, as we're talking about it, is still really new. Recording artists of his stripe have been around for 30 years-ish. Movie stars basically started in the 19-teens. There's sort of no blueprint for having a career that's longer than, say, 20 years. There's this funny quote that I came across yesterday from the agent Swifty Lazar, who was a major agent, and he actually lived in the same apartment building for a while as Frank, this Beverly Hills luxury apartment building. And at some point in the early 50s, Swifty Lazar says, Frank Sinatra's dead, and even Jesus couldn't get resurrected in this town. (laughs) There's this idea that once your career is in the grave, that's it. And so he shocked everybody by coming back. All right, so Frank is in his flop era in the late 40s and early 50s. He himself is in his mid to late 30s at this point. It seems as though his career is probably on the wane. And then things start to turn around through a combination of his film role in From Here to Eternity, which I believe is in 1952. It comes out in 53, and then he wins the Oscar in 1954. Okay, so how does that film and why that film in particular? And then also, I'm curious about the role that going to Las Vegas plays in reinvigorating his career or creating the version of Las Vegas that I think many people have in their minds today play in his comeback at this point. So MGM had dropped him. Nobody wanted him to star in movies. From Here to Eternity is a movie that he really fought for a part in. It was an ensemble war drama. It takes place on this army base in Hawaii right before Pearl Harbor. And it's sort of about these men and their masculinity and some of their relationships with women. And he plays a slightly older version of what he was perceived as in the first part of his movie career, which is the weakling soldier. Right. But instead of being kind of a sidekick to the macho guy, here he has this tragic arc. Watch out for Fatso. Watch out for Fatso. He'll try to crack you. And if they put you in a hole, 
Don't yell. Don't make a sound. You'll still be yelling when they come to take you out. Just lay there. Just lay there. It allows him to give like a real dramatic performance in a way that he never really had an opportunity to before. And the victory is getting the part because, again, nobody wanted to cast him. And he did really sacrifice his marriage to Ava Gardner. So he had everything on the line and he delivered in the performance. And all these accounts I've read, it's like the day he wins the Oscar, all the lights turn back on for him. Mm. All the doors that were closed start to open, and he's suddenly so in demand all of a sudden again. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm deeply thrilled and, and very moved, and I really, really don't know what to say because this is a whole new kind of thing, you know, I song and dance man type stuff. And... Uh, I'm, I'm terribly pleased, and if I start thanking everybody, I'll do a one-reeler up here, so I'd better not. And uh, I'd just like to say, however, that, that uh, they're doing a lot of songs here tonight, but somebody asked me. <laughs> and then, is that simultaneous to the Las Vegas thing? Because Las Vegas was seen, as I understand it, prior to whatever he and the Rat Pack's role in giving it a new vibe, was seen as where pop careers or where singers' careers go to die at that point, right? Because that was also happening around this time. So Vegas kind of starts as an entertainment capital in the mid-40s, but it has a real slow start because Bugsy Siegel basically tries to create it and then he gets murdered. <laughs> and it has... <laughs> this bad reputation, both for being kind of a cowboy hick town and then also right. the gangster stuff. And Hollywood is not sure how to engage with it. But people who have live performance careers could go there and make a lot of money. Right. And so Sinatra in 1951 starts playing Vegas because it's where he can make the most amount of money during his flop era. But even then, he can't fill these casino rooms. Right. He's playing at the Desert Inn and it's not sold out. But it allows him to kind of rebuild his career as like a guy who's pushing 40 rather rather than a guy who's 25. It becomes sort of a place where he's kind of workshopping things. And of course, things pick up after 1954 with the Oscar win. I mean, I know I went to see Lady Gaga's jazz and piano show in Vegas when she yeah. was nominated for A Star is Born. And it was like this really hot ticket. Famous people were there every night. And, you know, if she hadn't made A Star is Born, I don't know how attractive it would have been to see Lady Gaga play jazz for two hours in Vegas. Or the way that that film, I mean, more or less revitalized her career. The timeline in Vegas doesn't necessarily line up perfectly, but I do think it's an instructive idea in the sense that Gaga was never flop-flop. She was always present. It's not like Art Pop and Joanne were not debuting at number one and selling a bunch of records and whatever, but she had definitely had a commercial come down in the mid-2010s that was completely revitalized by this reimagining of herself in this film role that completely expanded her audience, reintroduced her to the world in a newer, maybe perhaps deeper way than maybe she had previously been perceived and had a similar effect of giving her career a breath of life that it hadn't had before. So I think there is kind of a parallel in that sense. One of the things that kind of changes the profile of Vegas is that Frank Sinatra is there and he's a big star after 1954. Sammy Davis Jr. is getting more and more famous at this time. Dean Martin breaks up with Jerry Lewis and then goes to Vegas to do exactly what Frank did, kind of regroup, rebuild his career. Those three guys, as the 50s are ending, start hanging out together. They start working together. Frank and Dean make this movie together in 1958 called Some Came Running, which was a vehicle for Frank Sinatra, but it also allowed Dean Martin to give an on-screen performance that was different from what he had done before. 
war. And I mean, that's like a really serious melodrama. It's really dark. But it also includes all these scenes of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin hanging out drinking together. Right. And it was <laughs> one of the top 10 hits of the year. It was a huge blockbuster. Right. And so that kind of helps to do for Dean Martin what From Here to Eternity did for Frank Sinatra in terms of making their shows in Vegas a destination. And so shortly after that, they start actually doing shows together in Vegas. And that's how the Rat Pack comes together. And I feel like this is a really important point to lay out there because I also think we were talking about earlier in the conversation, Frank's persona being this sweetheart guy, this guy that was a little bit of like a doe-eyed young man in search of cute romantic love and a white picket fence and all of these things that like a lot of his material dealt with at that time and that his persona really convincingly evinced on many of these early records. But as I was pointing out to you earlier in the conversation, like that's not how I think about Frank Sinatra. Like I think about Frank Sinatra as Rat Pack, as Mr. Cool, a little bit grizzled, maybe a little bit lewd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a man of the world who's like seen it all and, you know, has a cigar in his mouth. And that's what I think about when I think about him. And I'm wondering, like, is that what comes to fruition? And what is the culture of the Rat Pack? And how does the Rat Pack catalyze that version of Frank Sinatra's public persona? Well, as we talked about, part of the flop was that he left his wife and his family for this right. temptress, Ava Gardner. And so he couldn't be the boy next door anymore. Right. He was now like an adulterer. <laughs> when he's having these troubles with Ava Gardner, he's making these records like no one cares. And right. in the wee small hours, his public persona becomes like a guy who's at the bar drinking right. because right. his active sex life is depressing right. him. When you're alone. Heart has learned its lesson. You'd be hers if only she would call in the wee small hours of the morning. That's the time you miss most. And so that ends up becoming the new persona. What the Rat Pack does, though, is it takes that guy and it shows him, like, at the fun part of the night before he kind of starts wallowing, (laughs) you know? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's such an apt description of it. It's like right before, like, he's, like, alone in the corner crying. (laughs) He's having, like, the time of his life with his buddies, like, living it up, living large. I mean, just to, like, to... Like, the Rat Pack itself, that term was actually—it was Lauren Bacall's term for her husband, Humphrey Bogart, and his friends. She'd walk into their house in Beverly Hills, and they would have been drinking for, like, seven hours. It would be, like, him and David Niven and Judy Garland and Edward G. Robinson, and they would just look like drowned rats, she said. (laughs) So she started calling them the Rat Pack, and then Humphrey Bogart had enough of a sense of humor that he embraced it. And in the mid-'50s, Frank Sinatra basically moved in next door to those guys. Right. And so he became part of that crew. And then when Humphrey Bogart died in 1957, he started romancing Lauren Bacall. And they were briefly engaged, disastrously so. And it seems like when they broke up, he realized that he had idolized Bogart as this certain type of man that he wanted to be and and almost like a surrogate father for him. And it seems like after Bogart died, he realized that he didn't actually want to be Bogart in that he wanted to take his wife. What he wanted was to be the center of this entourage of men. Mm. 
mm. who were sort of devil may care. Right. And that's what comes together as the Vegas Rat Pack with him as the leader. You know, they called him the chairman of the board. Right. <laughs> and then the next tier is basically Dean Martin and then Sammy Davis Jr. And then they had a lot of people that kind of came in and out. But the classic version also includes Peter Lawford and this comedian, Joey Bishop, who'd be sort of the master of ceremonies trying to rein everybody in. I, hey, could we all finish by doing one no, number? Can we? May, May we, not Sam. can we? May we never end the same way. Sam, not can we? <laughs> fight, 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 fight. Oh, if I find out that's true, my heart is broken. <laughs> May we? Can we? May we? Could we? John, May we? we? Song, yes, sir. May we at Frank's. Okay. <laughs> all right. We can use that. Well, what about doing a number together? Yeah, now you're talking. Could we do Birth of the Blues together and each person take a number? Why not, Sam? Gee, that sounds like a swell idea. I'll get Mickey and Judy and we'll build a barn. (laughs) When's the last time you've seen an Italian cut? I'm going to cut him. You know, he touches me one more time. It's interesting because when I think about the sort of platonic ideal of 1950s masculinity, that's the thing that comes into my mind. Frank Sinatra and these guys. I don't know whether they were like reflecting a version of masculine ideals that were already in the ether or whether they inflicted that upon society. (laughs) But when I think about 1950s masculinity, that is what I think of is those guys and Frank in particular. I'm really fascinated by this era, this sort of middle period between World War II and Vietnam. And Frank Sinatra and those guys are the exact right generation to be dealing with this. Whether they participated in World War II or not, they were the World War II generation. And now it's basically been like 15, 20 years. And they've been going through the 50s on this promise of what you do is like you get married and you buy a house and you have kids and you buy a fridge and and you move to suburbia. (laughs) And now it's like, okay, but then what? And some of these guys, the then what is like, you leave your wife. Mm-hmm. And for some guys, it's enough to just like go to the country club with your wife on a Saturday right. night, maybe have one too many drinks right. and then keep living the life. But these guys were kind of holding up this idea that you could still have as much fun as you used to or you could have like a different kind of fun. Because it is definitely the jokes and the songs are more sexually forward. Right. His persona now, Frank Sinatra's persona now, and definitely Dean Martin's as well, even though Dean Martin was married almost his entire life to one woman or another. (laughs) Their personas are of men who fuck. Right. Of guys who are having casual sex. So my question is, Frank also has a musical reinvigoration. We've touched on this a little bit. Many of the most memorable Frank Sinatra songs that I think most of our listeners who are familiar with his music will probably recognize are from this particular era. One of the things that happens is he gets a new deal with Capitol Mm -hmm. and he begins a long collaboration with the arranger Nelson Riddle, who feels like a really important aspect of like this reinvigoration. We've touched on a few things about his changing persona. You know, one song that jumped out at me from this mid 50s period is the song Young at Heart, which like is an implicit acknowledgement that he is no longer young in flesh, you know, like <laughs> feels like an, yeah. an, an important reflection of the shift in his on record persona. And life gets more exciting with each passing day. And love is either in your heart. Are on its way Don't you know That it's worth Every treasure on earth To be young At all What I was reading about Is that the revelation For like this swing of 
for Sinatra's career, of the new persona, of the new musical aesthetic, which also includes, I want to point out, a series of concept records where he begins to take seriously the idea of album making, which also feels like a really important pre-rock idea of the album artist, the auteur, Mm. this idea that, as we were gesturing towards earlier, that wasn't really a huge part of the idea of being a singer in the early part of Sinatra's career and like amongst his contemporaries, this sort of serious auteur idea of the role that the artist takes in like the creation of their musical aesthetic. But what I read was the revelation for this was the song I've Got, The World on a String, which was an early collaboration with Riddle and Sinatra that was the moment where Sinatra apparently uttered in the studio, like, I'm back, baby, or something, you know, like that. <laughs> I got the world on a string, sitting on a rainbow, got the string around my finger, what a world, what a life, I'm in love. I'm curious, like, are there other songs besides that that feel, like, illustrative of what the new Frank Sinatra platonic ideal of a song is during this comeback period? I think that there's kind of two modes. There's this suicide song mode, and then there's the swing (laughs) mode. You know, he makes, like, five albums with the word swing in the title. Right. And you're right that he definitely becomes a concept artist or an album artist. He goes through this period, I think it's from 58 to 66, where he doesn't have a single number one single or top 20 single, but his albums are selling really, really well. Mm. And so for me, one sort of signature song during this time is just one of those things, which is a Cole Porter song from the 30s. And he records it for his album Swing Easy, which I think is in the early 60s. And it's basically like he's taking those two modes of the heartbreak song and the sort of like let's party song and pushing them together. It's very breezy about heartbreak rather than Mm. wallowing it. So goodbye, Here's hoping we'll meet now and then It was great fun But it was just one of those things It has this feeling of the sort of first part of the night. Here's to the women who fucked us and, like, we're moving on. But it's like, I think he has trouble maintaining that, like, exact tone. When he nails it, he nails it. But then he'll also, on the same album, he'll do Jeepers Creepers. Right. In a way where, like, you're not bringing any pathos to that. (laughs) It would be hard to bring pathos to Jeepers Creepers. (laughs) (laughs) And the other songs that I feel we can't not talk about during this particular period are I've Got You Under My Skin, the Cole Porter mm-hmm. song, which I feel like is like a totally signature song for him at this moment, as well as All The Way and Come Fly With Me feel mm-hmm. like signature songs of this moment. It is perfect for a flying honeymoon. They say, come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. What are those songs doing and what do you think has caused them to be the songs that live on most prominently for many people during this period? Yeah, I mean... These are all old songs that he's figuring out how to make his own and make contemporary. I came across this story from Nelson Riddle about how they approached doing I Got You Under My Skin for this album called Songs for Swinging Lovers. Mm-hmm. And basically, Sinatra, all he told Nelson Riddle was that he wanted a long instrumental lead-in so that there was a real build-up to his voice coming in. Right. And so Riddle took inspiration from Bolero.
which he referred to as, quote, sex in a piece of music. But his way of applying bolero to I Got You Under My Skin was to appropriate from Afro-Cuban music, which was having kind of a trendy period at the time. And so once like they agreed on the arrangement, Sinatra actually brought some unidentified blonde with him into the recording booth <laughs> and sang the song to her. Oh, wow. And he was usually really happy to just sing one or two takes, but he got so into this, like he was loving it, that he oh just like kept singing it over and over and over again. But each time I do, just the thought of you makes me stop before I begin, because I've got you under my skin. It's interesting to just think about the idea of him sort of taking his role as an artist more seriously. I'm just, I'm mm-hmm. intrigued by that idea during this period because I'm intrigued by some of the things we were talking about earlier in terms of being a singer at this time period or being this type of singer was all about interpreting standards and everyone kind of made the same songs and you were doing like a really standard idea of what it meant to be a singer, no pun intended, I guess. But I'm interested in the ideas of the way that even in the collaboration with Riddle, that kind of idea of coming together with another artist that you respect and this precursor to the idea of the producer or whatever becomes such an important element of like the Beatles music or the Rolling Stones music and obviously of all pop music moving forward after that. Him inadvertently toying with some of these tropes during this time period. Was that kind of an innovative notion at this time for someone like Frank Sinatra? Totally. I mean, Sinatra had to kind of invent his own way of working because he didn't write music. I don't think he even read music, but he was a voracious consumer of music. And so he was able to say, we need a little bit of Brahms here and have somebody he worked with understand what that means. And so Nelson Riddle was that for a long time until he wasn't. Snatcher was really into blaming people around him when things (laughs) didn't go right. And so he kind of got to a point in the 60s where his records weren't selling as well and he decided Nelson Riddle was the problem. And it's not like Nelson Riddle was the only person who found themselves in that position. Snatcher also had like a long, fruitful collaboration with Quincy Jones. Right. A very important connection to contemporary pop music, obviously. Completely. They worked together on Sinatra's version of this song, The Best Is Yet To Come, which had been popularized by Tony Bennett. It was kind of his signature song. And when Sinatra sings it, he really cranks up the sex Mm. so that you understand the double entendre in the word come. Yeah. The way he sings the word plum in that song is a lot. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything started into hum Still it's a real good bet the best is yet to come Ed Quincy is someone that he collaborates a lot with and including on one that our listeners will recognize, Fly Me to the Moon, was arranged by Mm -hmm. Quincy Jones as well, which feels like another huge signature song for Frank. In other words, please be true In other words, I love you. I'm curious, obviously, as this comeback and then eventual re-slump, I guess, maybe of the mid-60s or so that starts mm-hmm. happening again is happening. Obviously, as we've been insinuating, American culture is going through the most seismic shift of the modern era into <laughs> the sexual revolution, the birth of rock and roll, the birth of the rock star, Elvis, the Beatles, all of that happening. How are these things coexisting? So Frank, as we're saying, is having a big period of success through the late 50s and early 60s, kind of simultaneously to the birth of all 
of these things. They feel, looking back, like totally separate ideas to me. It's hard for me to think about Frank Sinatra having success at the same time as the Beatles were. It's hard for my brain to place those things together. I'm curious, how did those things intersect? And how did the sexual revolution and the birth of rock and roll affect Frank? Or how did he incorporate or interface with that in his work or public persona? So one thing I think that's important to be reminded of is that teenagers didn't really exist as a market until the 50s. And so before that, during Frank Sinatra's earlier period as a star, he appealed to teenagers, but he also appealed to their parents. Like it was supposed to be music for everyone. In the 50s, what ends up happening is that there becomes not just Elvis, but tons of culture, movies, TV shows, music that are very specifically for younger people. And then there's music for older people. And so there's plenty of people who hate rock and roll, who think it's the devil's music. And they're like, why can't we just have some nice Sinatra? Right. Even if Sinatra is singing about having casual sex, even if that's his persona, it's still more acceptable than whatever Elvis is doing. And so that's how they coexist for a while. It doesn't seem like Sinatra even thought of rock and roll as something he had to be worried about until around 1957. Mm. And then he starts dissing it in the press. Oh, really? What did he say? There's this quote from 1957 where he says that he's just heard, quote, the most brutal, ugly, degenerate, vicious oh. form of expression it has been my displeasure to hear. And <laughs> wow, shop. Yeah. Shop. They immediately go to Elvis and ask him what he thinks about it. And he's just basically like, I'm disappointed. And I think he should rethink that point of view. But it's totally fine for a guy his age to hate rock and roll in 1957. It doesn't matter, but it starts to matter. And so he has his own record label called Reprise. The whole idea of it was that it was going to give artists more control and allow them to own their masters. And right. that only sort of actually worked. Right. At first, he really fought to only release through reprise his friends and artists he liked. So it was basically all jazz. And he actually forbid the executives from signing rock and roll until by 1963, they were losing so much money that Mo Austin, who ran the label, went to Sinatra and was like, we got to make a change. If we don't start signing rock artists, we're going to fail. And they failed anyway. They were forced to sell to Warner Brothers. He does come across once you get these modern rock stars in the picture as super stodgy, like all of a sudden, whatever seemed like edgy about him to begin with starts to feel like really old hat. And then at a certain point, though, he does start to either feel like he has to or desires to embrace rock in certain ways. Like, there's interesting covers of Yesterday and Mrs. Robinson, I think in 67, which is really fascinating to hear Frank Sinatra sing those canonical 60s rock songs. Oh, bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. Heaven holds a place for those who pray. Hey, hey, hey. And then he kind of makes a rock song in That's Life, which is one of his most interesting songs in that way, where it feels like it's making a huge concession to rock and roll. And to blues music, it almost sounds like Frank doing a Ray Charles song or something. I said that's life. That's life. And as funny as it may seem, some people get their kicks stomping on a dream. Is that just an acknowledgement that there was no way for him to continue to have a relevant singing career without trying that? And like, how did that register at the time? Was that something that felt desperate in the same way that, let's say, listening to Madonna try to make a song with Migos feels in this time (laughs) period? Like, what is that like? Yeah, I mean, I think there is an aspect of that. So in 1966, he kind of breaks with Nelson Riddle and he agrees to record a song he hates, which is Strangers in the Night. He hates it so much that there's this part of it where he goes, doobie, doobie, doo. And apparently that was him being like, this song fucking sucks. I'm not even going to sing the lyric. Feel the 
But then it was his first top 20 single in eight years, and it actually knocked Paperback Writer, right. the Beatles song, off of the number one slot. And so that made him understand that he could do what he did and also sing newer songs. He actually, like, I guess behind the scenes, he was worried that that song would be perceived as being gay. <laughs> and sometimes when he performed it, he would actually turn it into, like, a gay joke. Instead of singing a warm, embracing dance away, he'd sing a lonesome pair of pants away. I mean, that's how much he hated that song. And even though it was a huge success, he turned it into a joke. And he kind of did the same thing when he recorded Mrs. Robinson, where he changed the lyrics to be all these in-jokes about him and his friends. Right. And this is something that Dean Martin was always doing. And it was sort of perceived as like devil may care. He doesn't even have enough respect for the song to sing it correctly, which is something that it always bothered Frank because Frank was like, respect the songwriter. Right. But he obviously didn't respect Paul Simon. Right. There's like a part where he sings, how's your bird, Mrs. Robinson? And you would have to be part of Frank Sinatra's friend group to know this. But bird was his slang for penis. Oh, God. So he is playing in these realms, but he's also showing contempt for them as well. There's something really interesting that happens in 1968. He's married to Mia Farrow, right. who is to the public eye. She is the ultimate flower child. And she's friends with all of the 60s rock stars. But at first, Sinatra won't let her hang out with them because he's too threatened. And so they would only hang out with his 50 and 60-year-old Hollywood friends. And then as their marriage is dissolving, she leaves Sinatra to go to India with the Beatles. Wow. Their marriage cannot recover that. <laughs> And that same year, just like a month or two later, he does this TV special and he films it wearing like a Nehru jacket and love beads. Oh, my God. You don't really know if he's trying to be hip or if he's making fun of his now ex-wife. I think it's kind of a combination of the two things. Well, it would track with what you were saying about his wink and a nod at singing Mrs. Robinson or whatever. He's kind of personifying the generation that's like, these kids today, everything they do is ridiculous and everything thing that we did was real music, real culture, whatever. And this is something to be looked down upon or made fun of. It's crazy how Mia Farrow is like one of the most important pop cultural <laughs> figures of the 20th century. I know. Everywhere you turn, there she is. Another thing to keep in mind, though, and I've just did a rewatch of Mad Men. And so you see this a lot in like the later seasons of Mad Men, too. You can have contempt for rock and roll or hippie culture, but you still want to have sex with young hippie girls. And so, you know, if wearing the love beads might help with that, it's worth it. And is he sort of already basically thought of as an American legend at that point, despite the fact that he might not be cool anymore. Is there just a general perception that this is just one of the biggest and best stars period that has ever existed, more or less, in pop culture? Sure, absolutely. And, you know, he still has these connections to people who were maybe a little bit more successful than he is. Dean Martin has a top 10 TV show the entirety of the 60s. And obviously, he's perceived as Frank's friend and collaborator. It's not like a switch flipped and there were the Beatles and then Frank Sinatra got thrown in the trash can. And these things are coexisting and there are multiple generations of consumers who are interested in different things. I mean, My Way right. was a massive hit in, I think, 1968. Right. Which is so thought of as his signature song, I think, maybe. Yeah. Even though he hated that one, too. Right. I know. That song's <laughs> got real power, though. I have to tell you, like, when I was listening to My yeah. Way, I was like, the way that this thing builds, like, I understand why it's everyone's funeral song of choice, which I think it's what it's become. There's something about Frank's <laughs> grizzled looking backwards 
Shepard's persona that's rich and emotionally moving in a way that his material gets more moving to me as he gets into this older phase because there's something sort of sweet and tragic and wistful that he captures really well on record. And yet also the thing about My Way that I think makes so powerful and maybe is a reflection of Frank's overarching ethos, there is this feeling of I'm still here, I'm still doing this, I still care about this, life is still a beautiful thing to me and that comes across in the way that he delivers his material in this period and that song I think really reflects that very very well for what is a man what has he got if not himself then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the That song moved me when I listened to it this time. Totally. I mean, he has gravitas. Now we think of the Beatles as being this institution, but in the 60s, nobody knew what kind of lasting power anything would have. But he had already had this lasting power. Whether he's conscious of it or not, he starts setting himself up as a nostalgia artist by announcing retirements and then making comebacks. He announces his first retirement in 1970. Yet another great pop trope that has continued into the modern era. Totally. And then three years later, he comes back. And one of his first albums after he comes back is called Some Nice Things I've Missed. And it's just (laughs) songs from between 1970 and 1973. What's his personal life like as he gets older? Is that kind of pathos or that sadness or whatever? Is that something that's reflective of what his actual personal life has come to be in this later period of his life, post Mia Farrow or during Mia Mm. Farrow? And how did the latter part of his life pan out? Was he like a happy guy? What was his vibe like? I mean, I think he was always kind of reaching for the brass ring. I mean, there's something that's very relatable about the way he's always sort of striving to be on top. I ate it up and spit it out, as he said. (laughs) Yeah. After his relationship with Mia Farrow ends in the late 60s, I think he's single for about eight years. And then he marries the ex-wife of Zeppo Marx, Barbara Marx. And they're actually together until his death. It's the longest marriage he ever has. And she's happy to be like a society lady, a beautiful blonde on his arm. Right. And so I do think things calm down a little bit. But again, he's kind of going back and forth between retirement and comebacks. And for me, something really interesting happens in 1980, which is he releases this album, The Trilogy, which is three records. It's very ambitious. The first record is Past, and it's all songs from basically the 30s that are his sort of signatures, but new recordings of them with new arrangements. And then The Present, where it's much more recent songs, like mostly songs from the 60s. That's where he sings the Beatles song Something. There's some really great covers there. And then there's The Future, which is this concept record created by the composer and arranger Gordon Jenkins, which is kind of like an operatic suite about what's going to happen in the future. And he contemplates his own death. And then he also contemplates going to space. And the thing about the future is it doesn't sound like futuristic music at all. It's completely arranged as though it would be something that would come out in 1953, but it comes out in 1980. Right. But that album produces New York, New York. 
And that becomes one of his biggest selling songs of all time. And his last signature hit that he ever releases, I would say, right? I mean, that's the funniest part about Frank Sinatra's career to me, looking back again as like a neophyte who's only seen this from the top line is what is the most memorable Frank Sinatra song to me? It is the song that he released in 1980. I grew up in New York. Every Yankees game I went to with my dad, Frank Sinatra singing New York, New York is the quintessential Frank Sinatra moment. And it's just so funny to think about how long this man's career was and how prolific he was that the fact that that is what lives on is not even a song that he recorded in his peak eras of success, but something that came here at the very, very tail end. And no matter what he's singing about at this point, which feels like a subject matter that would be more something that a younger person might be interested in because the whole song is about making a brand new start and getting a new wave of success in your life and living it up and finding a new beginning to think about that coming for him at this period of his career when he was in the latter part of his life, the latter part of his success as a singer is it gives it this sort of sadness, this layers of emotional depth that aren't even necessarily there in the top line of the song, but that he really is able to deliver in the most expanded way ever in his career, like during this latter period music. And it shows in the indelibility of his version of the song, which is, again, moving. Totally. These little town So Frank continues releasing music through the 80s and performing until his death in 1998. He releases a series of duets albums with contemporary stars like Bono and Gloria Stefan singing his work with him. But he's out there doing it basically until he dies, essentially, which, you know... Only the best of the best really, like, keep that going, I think. He reminds me so much of Madonna sometimes about just kind of, like, the themes even that come up in these later period songs of You Won't Stop Me and making a brand new start of it, like, the idea that it's never over, that he's going to keep going. I always find that really inspirational and quite singular to these, like, top, tippy, tippy, top, tier pop stars, the way that they just have this relentless drive to keep going, to never give up, to never get off the stage. And then his death, I'm sure, was a national event, as I can imagine, losing somebody with that level of stature in pop culture. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. Growing up in Los Angeles, when there'd be a a celebrity who died, it would just take over the local news for like three nights. And the two that I really remember getting that treatment were Lucille Ball and him. Mm. And looking back at it all, as we have talked about all of these different contributions, the breadth and longevity of his career, and a lot of the ways that he helped form our ideas of a modern icon, of a modern superstar, of a superstar of the era of technology. In the frame of pop stardom, where do we see his imprint? Where do we see his legacy in the pop stars that have come after him, do you think? I mean, he's the greatest singer ever of the American Songbook, in my mind, and I think in a lot of people's minds. I think he does set a standard for career longevity and for Mm -hmm. aging gracefully and for sort of finding like a new way of being 
being at different stages of his life. I think it's safe to say he seems virile and yeah. and cool up until about 75. When you see somebody like Madonna, I mean, obviously it's so different for women, but when you see somebody like that who's so criticized for trying to say, like, I have an active sex life as she gets into her 60s, it's very different. But, you know, I also think he influences people who you might not expect. Once I saw the film Control, I was able to see how Ian Curtis from Joy Division has like a Frank Sinatra sort of crooner aspect to him. Kind of the ways in which he's being emo is very Drake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the sad guy at the bar is a Drake-ish trope for sure. Yeah, even songs where it's like, this is a song to listen to at the bar about being sad that your romance didn't go well. You know, and obviously Frank Ocean took his name from Frank Sinatra. There are people who are directly say I'm inspired by Frank Sinatra. I don't know that Drake would have the persona that he has and really be able to do that if there hadn't been somebody like Frank Sinatra. I feel like everything you said and then the two other things that I would sort of build off of that I feel like are relevant are he feels like, and I know we touched on this at the beginning of the conversation, but in terms of how we think about pop stars, modern pop stardom, to me, he feels kind of like a patient zero. Like I understand that there were big pop cultural figures that Mm -hmm. he was building off of, of course. But like when I think about the idea of the pop star, of this guy, of this force of nature, this persona, this thing that can transcend time, bigger than the sum of its parts, bigger than even the songs themselves, something that just feels like a cultural institution in the way that we think of all of the pop stars that came after him that are in that echelon, the way we think about like an Elvis. I think so much about the way Michael Jackson actively looked up to him, talked about him all the time as just the consummate showman, the showman, all of the different entertainer aspects of that that could only be rendered in the way that pop culture could become a national and international phenomenon. Stardom couldn't be that way before the invention of these technologies, of the record, of eventually TV, of film, all of these things. He represents the biggest of the first wave iterations of that idea to me, at least just looking back at it in my way. And then the other thing is something that we also put a pin in that you were getting at here too, which is the invention of recorded music as an act of intimacy, a way to convey nuance, thanks again to technology, to the microphone, completely altering what singing is and the way that you could render a persona and layers of depth through holding back, through nuance, through being intimate into the microphone. I mean, I cannot talk enough about the amount of times we have brought up that technique when referring to artists as wide-ranging, as I mentioned at the top, as Janet, as Billie Eilish, as Britney, as Lana Del Rey. I mean, Lana Del Rey, another obvious, in ways, inheritor of some of these tropes. He is the person that didn't invent that, but I think he's the top most successful iteration of that crooner style that has completely altered everything that came after it and like how people sing. So those also feel like important elements of his legacy in pop as we know it today. Yeah, actually one other album I just wanted to mention briefly that we never talked about, just thinking about him as an innovator and using restraint as a technique is the album he made with Antonio Carlos Jobim. And that was something where Sinatra heard the girl from Ipanema called him up in Rio and was like, I want you to come to Los Angeles, make a record with me. And he just sang seven of his songs. Exactly. And that also, I think, the other thing that we should not escape this without mentioning is the authorship thing. This idea of taking yourself seriously as an artist, the 
singer beginning to morph, and that will come fully into fruition with these artists in the 60s. And then again, with the canonical pop stars of the 80s, taking the idea of being a pop musician as something that had aesthetic seriousness, had artistic value, could have emotional layers to it that wasn't just this frivolous whatever thing, but something that was there to be a statement, to say something deep, to have meaning, to have ambition, to have scope. You know what I mean? And I think that he feels important in that lineage as well. Tall and tan and young and lovely, the girl from Ipanema goes walking and when she passes, I smile, but she doesn't see. So let's talk about the pop pantheon, first of all. I don't particularly think this is exactly like a debatable thing to me. I'm going to just ask you, just because it's a formality, Karina, where do you think Frank Sinatra ranks in the pop pantheon? <laughs> I mean, I think he's the icon tier. I think that maybe one thing we've given a little bit of short shrift to is the ways in which he could be a huge asshole. Right. <laughs> I don't know if there's like a demerit. I talked about some of his homophobia. Yeah. He was really mean to Sinead O'Connor and was really involved in her getting pilloried for her comments about the Pope. There's a lot of bad stuff to talk about. He loved punching people out. So I don't know if there's icon tier with an asterisk, but that's where I'd put it. <laughs> Actually, it only helps because one of the things about the icon tier, and this is something I'm always saying to people who are trying to push me to put people in the icon tier that don't belong in the icon tier, which is a lot of people, is that there's nothing that can affect your icon status. I think Michael, again, being another great example of this, Michael Jackson is an incredibly controversial figure who has been credibly accused of some really horrific things and allegedly was a pretty complex, the nicest way I can put it, figure. And at the same time, there's absolutely no question, no way that we would not rank him as an icon. He's one of the most pivotal figures in pop music, whether he's evil or not. There's nothing that you can say about that. I think mm -hmm. same applies here. In fact, it only buttresses it. No amount of career foibles and no amount of personal malfeasance really can like affect your ranking in the tier. And I think Frank Sinatra and everything that you're bringing up about him embodies that concept to me. But I think most importantly, and one thing I say about the icon tier is if you were telling the story of pop music history in the broadest strokes possible, let's say you had two hours and you needed to like <laughs> explain the history of pop music in the 20th century, could you do so without mentioning this person? And I think it's more than abundantly clear that you could not. He would be one of the, let's say, top 15 or 10 artists that you would need to bring up to illustrate what pop music is. So I think that in and of itself is like enough of a reason that he's 100% tier one icon for sure. Last question is, what is an underrated Frank Sinatra song, something we have not discussed yet that we could send the show out on? I did mention The Best Is Yet To Come, but that was, I think, probably the first Frank Sinatra song that I heard where I was like, what is going on here? Right. Okay. I like that one too. I think that's a nice note for us to end yeah. on. The best is yet to come. It kind of says a lot about yeah. Frank Sinatra. All right, cool. Let's go out on the best is yet to come. Karina Longworth, thank you so, so, so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for including me. Oh my God. It was my honor, my pleasure. I'm going to teach you to fly. We've only tasted the wine. We're gonna drain the cup dry. <laughs> All right, there you have it. Pop Pantheon, Frank Sinatra, an unequivocal tier one icon. 
The judgment is rendered. Thank you so, so much to the brilliant and incredible Karina Longworth for being on the show with me today. Thank you so much to Ross Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week and to PJ Vernetti for helping me edit this episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ XIV on Twitter and Instagram. Go to poppantheonpod.com for merch. Go to patreon.com slash poppantheon for bonus episodes, Discord server, and so much more. And until I see you guys next time, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Best is yet to come, come the day you're mine. Come the day you're mine. And you're gonna be mine.